Welcome again to another Running Tales podcast. I'm Craig Lewis and I'm so pleased that you can join me today and help celebrate the extraordinary stories of everyday runners, race walkers and wheelchair racers. My wife Michelle and I started Running Tales. Don't worry, she'll be back soon, I promise, to tell stories exactly like the one that you'll hear today. This week's guest, Ross Jevons, ran last year's London Marathon in an incredible three hours, seven minutes. Not bad for somebody who didn't start running till later in life. Ultimately, though, he finished disappointed not to break that three hour barrier. Since then, his aims and expectations have changed completely. His life has been turned upside down over the last year. I will let him explain why, because it's quite the story. And he's barely run since. Until... Just weeks out from this year's marathon, he decided to enter again. With so little training behind him, I asked him why. That's a very good question. Um, Honestly, um, having done a lot of running in the past, uh, including London Marathon last year, after my son Corey was born in February this year um, with, with a very rare condition called uh, tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia, which effectively means in layman's terms, he was born with his um, his food pipe, his esophagus not connected to his stomach and the esophagus also having a, a connection which he shouldn't have to his to his windpipe, to his trachea. So yeah, A, a having two under two at that point, we have another two, he has a two-year-old other brother and, and B, obviously having a son with a rare condition just took all the time away from my life for running and obviously your priorities changed. So I, I didn't train at all from then. I just thought maybe I'll pick it up again one day, but not any time in the future. And then about uh, what, uh, two or three weeks ago, um, there's a charity called TOFS who are a very small charity because it is a very rare condition, but they're a charity who support families and individuals who suffer from the condition that my son Corey does. And they put a message on their Facebook page saying, we've had a, a, a competitor from the London Marathon drop out with injury. I don't suppose anyone's interested. And my wife, Katie, sent it to me. And I looked at it and straight away went, no, that's a stupid idea. But then about five minutes later, I went, mm, this does seem like fate. And I kind of looked for the seal of approval from Katie and she went, it does kind of seem like fate. So I went, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. And straight away, I sent an email to them and said, look, I've seen this on Facebook. And, and I knew at that point that I would get the place because A, I'd run a marathon before and B, they are such a small charity. I could see no one else had really interacted with this Facebook post. So I was like, obviously, no, I said that I'm going to get the place. And I did. And then you can imagine as soon as I got that confirmed, the reality set in and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? I haven't run for six months. Um, more to the point, I'm not sure when I'm going to train because unfortunately, at that stage, we were aware that Corey was likely to go in for some surgery in the next few weeks, next month or so. And at that point, it becomes very complicated with one child at home, one child in hospital and all of that. And it suddenly dawned me off, oh, God, this is a terrible idea. But we're here and um, obviously there's some really nice motivation around it in terms of raising awareness of the condition and also raising money. Um and I know it makes an awful lot of difference hopefully to toss every pound we can raise. So I'm here. My goals are very, very different to what they ever have been when it's come to running and racing before. It's just about getting across that finish line and raising as much money as possible. I'm going to ask you in a minute about just how you've managed it so far and what your plan is for the future. But first of all, I think the most important question is, is just how, how how is Corey going? Because I know obviously he's not not been very well. And I think you mentioned he was still in intensive care. Yeah, so just to give a quick kind of overview of where Corey's journey has gone. After the day he was born, he was taken straight to 
um, neonatal intensive care, where he had an operation 24 hours later to try and repair his esophagus, which unfortunately failed. They did manage to remove that connection I referred to as, as the uh, connected to the trachea, which is obviously very good because there's no way he could have led with that. He was in neonatal intensive care for six weeks. Uh, they, there was a second surgery about a month in where they tried again to connect the esophagus and it just tore away. And unfortunately, it, it wasn't possible. So at that stage, we were left with only one surgical option, unfortunately, which is a, a, a pretty rare surgery again. Only, only one in 25 children in the UK have um, the condition to the extent as Corey does, i.e. there's that long gap between the stomach and the esophagus. Around 250 children suffer from TOF each year, and he's just in that even rarer minority that can't be repaired. So we were left with the option of a gastric pull-up, which is when they effectively take your stomach and tubularize it, turn it into a tube, and, and bring it up into the middle of your chest and connect it directly to your neck, which is effectively the, the one remaining option to give him a chance to feed orally. So that operation um, took place two weeks ago. As I say, slap bang in the middle of when I knew I'd probably be training for the marathon. And um, Corey was in intensive care for, for just over two weeks afterwards, sedated and paralyzed on a ventilator because obviously it's such a hugely extensive neck surgery that they just couldn't risk him moving. Um, uh, in case there are any complications. So he's actually just came off the ventilator a, a couple of days ago and is doing okay. Um, he uh, unfortunately suffered from a fairly common complication from this um, surgery where he's had a leak about the side of his neck, what they call a fistula. So um, we're in a bit of limbo at the moment where the, the main priority is just having him recover from such a massive operation. And then we're going to wait and see what the plan is, to, whether that's going to need to be closed, whether there's going to be... Um, further surgeries down the line it's all a bit up in the air at the moment but the most important thing is yeah he's he's recovering he actually gave us his first smile today since the operation which was lovely he uh, he's become a bit more himself because you can imagine when um, when you come off ventilators and things like that the, the powerful drugs that these tiny six-month-old babies are on is is incredible he's on one drug which was um 100 times stronger than morphine the doctors told us so they suffer from withdrawal symptoms and all kinds of things when they come off the drugs which is also difficult to see but i think every day that goes by now is he's starting to recover starting to become more himself and we'll just work out what the next step on his journey is well what an incredible thing for Corey to have to go through at such a, uh, a young age I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that he's he's slowly improving and i hope that continues but Obviously, this is running towers, and I suppose the the obvious question is, how on earth, with all that in the background, have you managed to do any any training at all? I mean, I guess the first thing was I set expectations to myself. So, in in the past, although I had run for a, a charitable cause previously, it had also been um, alongside really pushing myself to to run to the best of my ability. So, um, when I ran the London Marathon last year. Um, I had I'd pretty much trained for two years because I, I was lucky enough to get a place, well, lucky enough to get a place in 2020, which was then, of course, when COVID hit. So I trained all the way through that first half of 2020. Marathon got postponed. If you remember, they then um, rearranged it to the October 2020. So I trained all the way through the year again, got postponed again. I chose not to run the virtual marathon. And they knocked it back to October 2021. So I then gave myself a bit of a break and went again. So... I went into that marathon last year as fit as I've ever been. Um, I was training five, six times a week. Uh, I was gutted at the time not to run under three hours. I was, I was, I'd set my heart and soul on that. And I'd actually, um, especially towards the end when we knew that Katie was pregnant, as it transpired with Corey, I'd kind of said in my head, well, this is going to be my last real race because we've 
we didn't know about Corey's condition at that stage. We're two under two. It's going to be a long time until I can properly train like I have at that point again. So I was really, really disappointed at the time to not get in the three hours. Um, so yeah, then coming into this training, I just I knew straight away that this is good. I need to just get round, and I've never had that before in a race. I need to manage my expectations. I need to get round. I've had six months pretty much of, of not training under Corey. Gone out for the odd like very slow five k, but barely anything. So I could feel I wasn't fit. So I put together a, a, a kind of realistic training plan of about three or four runs a week for, for it was a eight weeks notice I had actually for the marathon. Um, with fully in the expectation there's going to be days and weeks, this week actually being one of them where I'm just not going to be able to go out that much. Um, so as as kind of logic has it, it was slightly different as, as mad as it sounds when, when Corey was in intensive care um, because... A, they have nursing staff around 24-7. And B, slightly frustratingly, um, they, when they have ward rounds, so when the doctors and nurses and surgical teams and everyone come together to discuss a child's case, the families actually get turfed out of the unit. And that can be for two to three hours a day um, for various reasons. They don't allow the families back in. So I've used that largely as my time to, to go for a run during the week. And then obviously my long run on a Sunday, usually what we've been doing is I've been kicking off my long run during that ward round time. And then if I'm not back in time, my wife would obviously be in the unit with Corey. So that that was the way we managed it initially. And now that Corey's kind of recovering a bit um, and is awake a lot, and there's going to be times soon when he gets hopefully moved to a children's ward where effectively we will be in with him 24-7 or have to be. Um, that's when it's going to start getting really complicated. And I think we're probably going to have to, because we have another another boy, Callum, is the light of our lives as well. He's a two-year-old. Um, we might need to rely on some babysitting duties or something for a for a Sunday long run. I don't know. I haven't thought that far ahead yet. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna see how we got to. I managed to get up to about 16 miles on Sunday, just gone, and I'm hoping to kind of go 17 miles next week, this weekend, 17, 18, and then maybe try and fit in an 18, 19 mile run a couple of weeks before the race. And then see how it see how it goes from there, basically, and see how I feel on on the big day. I mean, it sounds like you've you've managed to up your training enough to to be getting in um, the big runs at the time you you need to to presumably allow yourself a, a bit of time to to taper off. Do you have a do you have a time in mind? Is there a new, a new expectation on that, or just getting around? It is just getting around. As I say, that is against every kind of fibre of my being as a runner in the past. Uh, every, every race I've ever done whether it be 5k 10k half marathon marathon i've had a time in mind and it's and 90 percent of the time it's been to break a personal best because it's just how that was kind of what motivated me and what was always motivated me for my running because okay I, I guess i came into running quite late actually i never really i'm 36 now and i, never, I probably started running when i was about 29 and i found quite a natural affinity to it i found that it was quite it came to me quite naturally compared to other disciplines and sports so I guess I thought, right, now I've found something I feel like I've got natural affinity. I'm going to try so hard to maximise what I can do. But this time around, I just know that's not going to happen. Like, I'm not going to get anywhere near what my PB 307 from last year. And the last thing I want to do is get injured in training. Like, that was just be completely contrary to everything I'm doing. So I've, I've just completely, I've not thought of a time. So I guess if when I was training for the last year, I was probably doing my long runs at, maybe kind of seven minute 30 pace per mile now i'm probably looking at eight thirty nine minutes almost like a i'm not sure i could go any faster than that anyway to be honest but that as a, as a deliberate ploy to try and really take it easy i've not really done any speed work or anything like that a couple of like tempo-ish sessions but not nothing really drastic 
Um, so I'm, I'm kind of fully expecting to really struggle for the last few miles. I'm probably going to go in looking at like eight minute 30 per mile pace, I'd imagine. So I don't know what that is looking at kind of three, 40 to four hours. But as I say, fully expecting that could get to the point where I need to stop or need to, which again is something I've never done in a race before, never walked. Um, I've just, I've like never allowed myself to do that. And I'm expecting to do that this time. And it's not going to bother me. Do you know what I mean? If, if, the, the kind of ultimate goal actually is to have Corey come and watch um, as much as a six-month-old baby can watch. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that will happen at this stage, but obviously if he's there, like I want to stop and I want to see him wherever he is on the route and all that kind of stuff. So it's quite nice. It's quite refreshing to take that approach to a race. And, um, you know, if I, if I manage to get around in under four hours, to be honest, then I'll, I'll take that as a, as a bit of a win. And how much will knowing that you're doing this for Corey and, and for other uh, babies, young children um, with with the same condition. How much will that kind of be be pushing you on both in your training and, and on the day? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, firstly, for Corey, I mean, the way I've looked at it at times is uh, whilst it's not easy sometimes to squeeze in these runs when you're underprepared, when you're tired at silly times of day, when you're not usually ready to train, like you imagine the amount of really like much it's hard to say it, the amount of pain and suffering that he's gone through as a six-month-old baby and the amount of times he's been sat in that intensive care unit like unable to move and upset and scared and I'm thinking I'm what am I whinging about do you know what I mean like, I like running running is my release a lot of the time as tough as this is I, I'm not I'm not complaining about it so that's the attitude I'm trying to take and actually in terms of the awareness piece I've been surprised at how much money we've been able to raise so far I've been really pleased because having actually um raised money for a different cause last year um which is another story I, I was fully expecting to it'd be difficult to you know you tend to go to the same people again and all that kind of stuff so I've been pleased to raise my money and actually today I was doing um there was a local news crew that came and filmed us in Oxford um and I met for the first time a representative from TOFS the charity that I'm running for and he said that around 20% of their um annual fundraising comes from London the London Marathon which really put into perspective um you know how important it is for a charity of their size. I actually I work for a children's charity called Chance to Shine, who are a, um, a charity that help children to play, learn, develop through cricket. And and um, we at Chance to Shine, um, we raise about six million pounds a year. And you know the London Marathon for Chance to Shine is negligible. Like we have a brilliant runners who come in, but like they, in the grand scheme of things, you know it's not the biggest source of fundraising. So to hear that actually what. I and we, because there, I think there's seven other runners from Tops, are are doing is making that amount of difference. It's huge motivation, not just to run, but to keep bugging the hell out of people on social media and family and friends to say please, please donate. Yeah. So a, a couple of quick questions off the uh, off the top of that, and um, with the first one, I'll, I'll make sure it goes in the the show notes as well. If people want to contribute to donate, where do they need to go? And, and secondly, what will that money be practically used for? Yeah, so I mean, the the easiest way to do it is um, probably just to go on one of my social media profiles, so Ross Jevons um, on Twitter, and I'll pin I'll pin our kind of fundraising ask to the top of my Twitter page. Uh, it's it's a people's fundraising fundraising page. In terms of what it'll be used for, TOFs do two things really. I guess they um, they give support to families and uh, who are going through this uh, this condition. So whether that be their children, whether that be themselves. And to give a really tangible example of that and how it's helped us, it, because it is such a rare condition, A, there is very limited to zero information out there about it. 
be not just friends and family and us, but actually healthcare professionals, whether that be your local GP, whether that be nurses, whether that be um, anyone you might come across in the kind of NHS system other than the real experts in this field know nothing about this condition, more or less, and they won't have ever seen a child with Corey's condition. Um, so TOFS actually produced, my, I think it's downstairs, I should have brought it to show you, but they produced what's called like the TOFS handbook. It's about that fit, which isn't helpful if people are listening on a podcast, but I, don't, I think it's 120 pages, and it goes into detail of what the condition is, but it also um, it has various sections on the various um, kind of um, minutiae of the condition so whether that's like long gap which is what Corey has where there's too big a gap to repair um, or whether that's the various um, complications that you can suffer from the condition they it's written by experts but it's written in layman's terms so they strip back all the medical terminology and the sign and the kind of scientific um, wording or whatever so it's really easy to understand and there's details of the different surgeries you can have and then what the journeys are for from that surgery because they're, they're like three or four depending on your outcome for your four different types of surgery that tend to happen most commonly for this condition so you can read all about what that surgery is what the complications are what the journeys are and then the thing i actually found most warming and most comforting from it is they also include case studies which again working for a charity myself like case studies are your bread and butter a lot of the time you know you go out there and it's how you tell the emotive stories of, of whatever your particular beneficiaries might be but for me for instance to the one story that always springs to mind is this gastric pull-up that Corey had. Barely any children at all have this in the UK. Um, but there was one boy who had it. I think I can't remember how old he was now, but at the time of this case study, he was eight or nine years old. And he said that he loves his gastric pull-up because when he, he's at school and they're doing science lessons and they say, right, everybody point to your liver, now point to your stomach. And he points at his chest. The teacher says, no, 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 that's, that's not where your stomach is. And he goes, yes, it is. And I just, <laughs> I can imagine Corey doing that when he's older and it may be smart. It just makes you, and you read, you know, stories of children who have climbed mountains and done all this stuff. And it's so easy to get caught up in the, um, the real devastating, like day to day and initial shock of it all. And all this stuff you go through and actually to give you that level of hope for the future. And of course it's not all um, sunshine and rainbows and there are difficult times and there are examples and there are some really, really tough things that can lie ahead, but to have that is great. And, and then the other thing, of course, they do is, is they effectively look to help a, a future whereby people living with that condition have life a little bit easier. So, you know, that's there's barely any research out there, like I said. So trying to fund various strands of research and support various strands of research. And, and hopefully that leads to not only making decision making easier for families, but maybe even who knows, like uh, finding different procedures and drugs or whatever it might be that will that will make life easier for people and families who are going through all this. Well, Ross, I mean, I, I definitely wish you all the best in in raising as much money as you as you possibly can. And and obviously, as uh, Corey continues to progress, that he that he's uh, he's in that classroom uh, doing that doing that uh, that same joke as soon as possible. I just wanted to touch quickly on your own sort of running career. Um, you mentioned that you didn't start running until quite late on was was there any particular reason for that and how did you sort of get into it in the first place yeah it always makes me smile actually so I was working at I worked for the English Football League um for about that period and I've always you know I've always loved sport I've always worked in sport and I've I've you know played a lot of football like five small side five side football tried to go to the gym and keep fit but even on the gym like I'd kind of avoid the treadmill probably and my, my biggest, uh, my, 
well, I, I was, I was going to say my biggest downfall in playing football is my fitness and not being very good at football. But the fit, I could definitely, if you ever, if I ever played 90 minutes of football, I'd like, I'd be dying after an hour. I think not. But I still always found I had a bit of a natural engine. And then when I was at the, at the football league, one of our partners at the time um, offered us places at, I'm trying to remember what it's called, but it was a, it was a 5K relay event at the Olympic Stadium in London. Um, where effectively it, is, it was a bit of a corporate thing. You could enter as an organisation. They did have some universities and whatever enter, and it was a four-legged 5K relay. So every you had 14 members and everyone did 5K and you finished on the um, home straight of the Olympic Stadium. So I was like, yeah, why not? I'll give it a go. Um, and I think, I think from memory I trained for like, you know, 5K. I, I trained for like a, a month or something, just doing little bits of barely anything. And then I think I ended up doing it in 21 minutes, 30 seconds or something like that. And there was a, there was a chap who I worked with called Andy, who I remember, it was a very, very good runner, like he run marathons. And I remember him saying to me at the time, like, have you, have you ever done part run or anything like that? Have you ever tried? I said, no. He said, you should give it a go. Like, that's not, that's not a bad, and I had no concept of what was good and what was bad. And not that, not that any running time is bad, but like, uh, I had no concept of what was a kind of semi-decent time. He said, you should, you should give it a go, you know. And then that year, I then thought, okay, I signed up for the Reading Half Marathon and I trained hard for that. I, I just printed off, a, uh, I Googled like half marathon training plan. They had beginners, intermediate and advanced. I thought, I'm not doing beginners. I'll do it. I'll do intermediate, which probably was completely the wrong thing to do, really. Um, having not really done a race like that before, but I thought I'd give it a go. Um, and then I did that. I did the half in that year in... I think it was must have been ninety five minutes or something like that, ninety six, maybe a bit more. Um, and my wife always reminds me because afterwards, the first thing I said was, "There's no way on earth I'm ever doing a marathon. Like you'll never catch." I was I was dying at that point, and I said, "There's no way I'm ever doing a marathon. How can people ever do a marathon?" Because like I was exhausted after that. <laughs> but then it just went from there, and I just entered race after race. Started doing part runs. Um, I. My first marathon was Paris in 2018, I want to say. And I did Richmond. I did the Richmond Marathon in London that same year. So I did Paris in the March and Richmond in October. How did you find Paris? Because uh, I know my wife, Michelle, who, who I did this podcast with, she did it. She found it one of the hard. I mean, she's done 17 marathons. And she found it wow. one of the hardest she's done just because of strange things like pedestrians walking in front of you and it all ran out of water <laughs> towards the end. And I've, I've heard others say similar things. Yeah, so my memories were, it was obviously my first marathon, so it was all a new experience to me. It was hot. The one thing I think I'd read in advance, and I definitely found on the day, was that the water stations were carnage. Like you were, you were kind of elbowing people out the way and kind of trying to bundle through people to get to, get to whatever they had, waters or Lucozades, whatever it might be. And the section, there's various sections, which they had to a certain extent in London, but nowhere near as much when you're going under the underpasses. I remember there being a lot of them which was almost like an interval hill training going down and up and that was tough. So I, I yeah, I um I enjoyed the experience. It's, I tried to soak in as much as obviously as you are going through central Paris as possible. Struggled a bit in the heat, struggled in the last few miles, but I didn't drink I didn't really hit the wall at that stage or anything like that. At least I didn't think I did. So yeah, I enjoyed it. And then with the Richmond Marathon that year, so I did Paris in three hours forty odd. And I thought, right, I, now I've done that, I feel I can kick on. So I, I tried to find a really flat, easy, cheap marathon in England. And Richmond is a lovely one if you've ever done it. 
you literally just go along the banks of the Thames on the Thames path there and back more or less it's completely flat I think I did that in three hours 15 later that year and felt really really good I was surprised at how good I felt the whole marathon to be honest and then took a bit of a break from marathons did a few halves etc I managed to get my half time down to about 82 minutes when I was when I was training for the London Marathon last year and then yeah set my from from 2020 just set my heart and soul and trying to go sub three and to be honest if if you'd twisted my arm beforehand I said I said I was going to do it but having a Having said I'd never hit the wall, I hit that wall pretty hard. <laughs> About 21, 21 miles, I was flying and feeling great. And I wasn't, I didn't do anything stupid. You know, I, I kind of, I knew my pace. I knew what I needed to get and I did that pace. But, you know, something didn't go right. And I was about 21 miles. I felt, I felt dreadful. Like at the end, I had to, as soon as I finished, I had to take myself to one of the tents and might have some supplements or sugars or something so i just didn't i couldn't have walked to the tube station i was completely done so i'm hoping for not a repeat of that in a month's time there's nothing worse than that feeling whatever your pace is of, of entering that sort of last uh, four five six miles of a uh, uh, of a marathon and and suddenly when you if you were to do again for whatever your pace is the kind of slowest part run you could ever imagine that is your sprint at that point <laughs> you're like how can i not run at all now you know what? It's, it's 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 so demoralizing as well when you've gone for a, you've trained for that long and you've gone for a time as well. Like I guess it's one thing. For instance, if it had happened to me in Paris, first ever marathon, I would have been like, oh, okay, it's a bit annoying, but I I don't I just want to do the best I can. If this is the best I can. That's fine. Whereas whereas that London marathon, I was so I knew it all gone apart at that stage. So I had zero motivation. Although I actually ended up getting a PB, I was so disappointed for the last four miles. Let alone the fact that I felt horrendous. And yeah, it's just a complete war of attrition. I thought, well, I'm going to have to finish. I don't really want to, but I'm going to have to finish. And yeah, there's nothing, nothing quite like it really to 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 be three hours into something and think, God, like I didn't. I actually, I didn't even look at my watch once I knew the magic three had gone over. I was like, I'm not even going to look. And I remember actually being shocked at how how far over it I'd gone. I thought that must have been like three o three or something. And I looked at my watch. I thought, oh my God, I pressed. Like I'm really. Stuck. I was going. You know, I guess it must be running like nine minute miles or something for the last few few miles. Uh, it'll be interesting to see this time round whether with the with the aim being to kind of finish and going. I mean, I'm sure you'll be going as fast as you can now. So yeah. it'll be a different thing whether you whether you're able to kind of take it all in and enjoy it a little bit more. Absolutely, and and I, that's kind of it's one thing I almost kicked myself for the last time was I didn't enjoy that. And I didn't really pay as The only thing, bizarrely, I remember vividly from, uh, from London last year was the um, anti-vax protesters en route. There was a couple of pockets of them holding up signs about, um, I don't know, you're going to have a heart attack or various, this like quite aggressive, mean, nasty sign. I remember thinking, what a horrible, horrible thing to do with your time. But yeah, the, the weeks afterwards, I thought, that's a shame. I'd literally always, always wanted to run London. And I now I looked back at it in a really negative way and still do. So I, I, that's another reason why I'm, I'm really not focusing on the time this time around because I'm thinking, you know what, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to look out for people I know, runners I know. I'm going to, I would do this anyway, I like to think. I'm going to try my best to encourage people around me and to help people who need support. Everything that's positive about running and everything that actually is always attractive to me about running, other than pushing myself to the best of my ability, I always love the fact that I love part run. I love if you go to part run that you can be first last whatever it is and people always be cheering you on people be cheering each other on chatting to each other and that's same in races and um 
yeah, I thought that's a really positive thing. You don't tend to get in other sports or other disciplines. So I'm going to just going to enjoy that side of it and try and soak in the sights of London. You know, I know I've worked in London. I've lived in London. I know it really, really well. So it's it's cool to be able to walk past the various areas that you're familiar with. And hopefully if I can do that and avoid the pain of the last few miles, then it'll be a nice positive experience. Do you think that this is potentially going to be the start of maybe a, uh, a running and fundraising um kind of a regular thing for you to whether it's london or other races to to to, to raise money for, for for this charity or or do you think this is it i'm going to do this and uh and i'm quite happy with that so i mean i thought about this before and as i say um i haven't i previously raised money for a charity called tommy's as unfortunately i had a bit of misfortune as i mentioned my wife and i suffered four miscarriages before our first son was born callum um and so that's also a charity very close to us. And that's what I ran London for. And we actually raised like um, almost uh, 10, 12,000 pounds for that because Katie's work gave a big lump sum. And that would have been in 2020 or 2020s, as I say, it ended up being 2021. So I felt like I've asked for, I've asked for people's support and donations quite recently. This is obviously completely unexpected, really, really important cause to us now. And people understand that. And we've had, um, we've had terrific support from a fundraising point of view. I would probably, I feel like we'd struggle to get traction and struggle to, and especially in the current financial climate, I feel bad about asking people to donate again for, for a running cause. Um, what uh, what I've looked at is potentially, you know, branching out into a different fundraising causes for, for TOFs, like doing a, I don't know, a, a cricket competition or a football competition where people are actually getting a tangible benefit um, to doing it. And maybe do it that way and obviously the awareness piece would always do because that's 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 um priceless in itself but my one thing i'd say actually kind of correcting correcting that story slightly it's uh, one thing i've found about raising money is that it needs to be a personal connection to you um certainly for from a from american point of view for people to really relate to it and actually sometimes it's about finding that something a little bit different and that little bit challenge uh, that different challenge um and what i actually did Initially, when the marathon was cancelled in 2020, was I decided to run 100 miles in a week for um, for Tommy's because one in 100 women suffer recurrent miscarriage. So I kind of ended up doing that as a joint time a fundraising thing between doing the marathon the next year and, and doing it that way and doing that 100 miles. Whilst you know it might not seem that a lot to some and ultra runners etc. They probably do that in their sleep. Um, it was different and people it got kind of attention from some local press and friends and family because they just, no one else was doing that at that particular moment in time. So I think that's always a, that's always an option, but yeah, going forward, I just, I, I, I probably wouldn't be doing anything running related for tops, but certainly you'd be doing other things. Well, Ross, I think this, uh, this one attempt that you're doing is, uh, is, is more than enough. And I think it's, it's going to really <laughs> test you, but it sounds like, Hopefully, a uh, you, you you'll really enjoy London this time, and and B you'll make loads of money to to help the charity and uh, and, and to help children like like Corey. So thank you very much for joining us on Running Tales today. I really appreciate your time, and, and best of luck with everything. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you.